Well, take your Bibles this morning, if you would. Turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to be here in 2 Samuel for several weeks. Uh, verse 14, or not verse 14, but chapter 14 uh, this morning. We've been talking about leaving a legacy and learning lessons from the life uh, of Absalom. And uh, last week, uh, it was made very clear to us the dangers of taking vengeance into our own hands. Absalom, of course, after the rape of his sister Tamar, plotted revenge against his half-brother Amnon for two years and then carried out that murder in the presence of all his other brothers at a gathering that was supposed to be a feast of thanksgiving. Uh, of course, this murder uh, resulted in the devastation uh, of King David, Absalom's father, Amnon's father, uh, as well as their family. The brothers who were there, it says, fled in fear for their own lives. Absalom himself fled uh, into a self-imposed exile that lasted, as we're going to see, for three years. And then further, beyond all of this immediate family uh, chaos, the kingdom of Israel now seem to be teetering on the brink of collapse. Uh, the Word of God is very clear about how we should handle things, all right, and especially things such as offenses against us, uh, hurt feelings, uh, sins against us. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19 verses 17 and 18, God said this, he said to Israel, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Obviously, Absalom was either unaware of this command or simply chose to ignore it. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Pretty simple. Now, I know that when I think about my own life and perhaps when you think about yours, there have been very few times in my life that I have sense the need to take my revenge against someone. So, so the idea of taking vengeance against someone that has hurt you, at least on the scale that Absalom did, uh, may be something that's far removed from your own personal experience. But how about that latter part of the verse that says we're not to bear a grudge against the sons of your own people? If you're bearing a grudge this morning against someone who has hurt you in some way, you need to forgive that person. You need to let that go. You need to make it right. You're not to carry a grudge around. Again, it too leads to what the writer of Hebrews says is a root of bitterness. It will not only inevitably consume your own life, but it will defile, it will devastate, it will impact the lives of countless others around you. And of course, it's not only in the Old Testament that we find such commands about how to carry out or not to carry out vengeance or hold a grudge. Speaking through the Apostle Paul, God said this in Romans chapter 12. He said, repay no one for evil. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, now he's, he's talking to, to us this morning, church, to Christians. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
So if there are thoughts in your heart or your mind this morning of somehow getting even, leveling the, the score, getting back at someone for something that they've done to you, you just need to let that go. You need to repent. We're not to do that. So again, how do we handle it when we are hurt, when we are offended, when someone has done something against us? Well, God's command to his people is to seek restoration for those who have fallen, to seek restoration for those who have sinned against us, for those that we have something against, and not only restoration, but also reconciliation. In other words, we're not simply to forgive or to decide that we're just going to overlook the offense, but we're to reconcile with that person. Uh, we're to let all enmity, hostility, anger, uh, grudges, we're to let those things go and we're to reestablish a relationship of peace with the one who has offended us, who has hurt us. And as Neil shared last week, he read from Romans 12, 21 that says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the way you do that. The way you overcome evil with good is that rather than plotting to get even with them, to take your vengeance upon them, rather you will plot to reestablish peace with them. I mean, that's what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, we all sinned against God. The Bible says every one of us, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, and of course, the wages of sin is death, separation from God. And yet God in Christ Jesus has provided a way for us to be forgiven, restored to the kingdom, reconciled to God himself. And that's what we really want to concentrate on as we look at this 14th chapter of 2 Samuel. I tried to just take the last part of this chapter, uh, but it just wasn't working for me. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and uh, just in case you're wondering, it's going to take about six minutes. <laughs> I timed it this morning. I'm going to allow you just to remain seated, follow along with me in your Bible or on your device. The words will be up here on the screen. Uh, Sue graciously said, uh, we've got them. We can, we can put them all up there. So 2 Samuel Chapter 14 it says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner. Put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and, thus, and speak thus to him. And so Joab put the words in her mouth, told her what she was to say to the king. And when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, paid homage, and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in a field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they said, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. And thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. 
Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now that I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought I will speak to the king, and it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And then the king answered the woman and said, Do not hide from me anything I ask. And the woman said, Let, your Lord, let my Lord the King speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my Lord the King, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord the King has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth or in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. For the Lord my king, in, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair, uh, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was very heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. We're getting a little foreshadowing here of, of, of the kind of guy that Absalom is here. I mean, anybody that would cut his hair and weigh it and take pride in the weight of his hair, you know, something going on there. There was born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. He named his daughter after his sister. She was a beautiful woman. By the way, the name Tamar means palm tree. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem. So he has now been away from the palace for five years. He lived in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. This also tells us a little something about Absalom. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that, you may send, that, you, that I may send you back to the king to ask, 
Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. A long story and a really involved story. We could really break this down. Uh, Three main characters. Joab, of course, is the one who initiates this plot to bring peace between Absalom and his father. Uh, Obviously, some of what we're reading here should indicate to us that Absalom also is plotting in some way to, to find his way back into the good graces of the king. David certainly has had a plan all along on how he was going to handle or perhaps not handle this situation. And we've been pretty critical of David in the way that he has dealt with the issues that have arisen in his own family, or rather, I guess, more specifically, how he has not dealt with them. And so all of this that has come to pass, we could say has come to pass because of David's inaction. And so Joab finally just takes matters into his own hands. And he's not out for revenge here. He's out to make things right. That's his motive, or at least to make them right as he sees it. And so he employs a woman from Tekoa, a wise woman. It's the same word that was used of Amnon's cousin, clever. This was a woman who was skilled Uh, She would be able to to pull off this ruse. She would be able to tell this story as if it were truly her story uh, and convince the king of the truth of what he was hearing. Uh, And so she comes before the king just as she had been employed to do with the words of Joab in her mouth. And she begins by saying, save me, O king. Uh, She falls at the feet of the king and cries out for mercy. Uh, they would quench my coal that is left. You can, you can just hear her trying to employ, uh, implore the king to, uh, to see the, the, the desperate plight of this woman who's already lost one son at the hands of the son who's still alive, and now she doesn't want to lose that son. David, up to this point, as we've said, has been unwilling to take responsibility. He's not confronted Amnon, and now Amnon is dead. As a result of that, he did not confront Absalom. And now, again, Joab, trying to set things right, uh, believed perhaps that if David could simply see this situation from someone else's point of view, maybe he could be persuaded to act to do the right thing. And of course, this has worked once in David's life already. You remember when the prophet Nathan came to David after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. Nathan also told David a story. It was a a fictional story, but it had a point to it about the man who had one little lamb and the rich man came and took his lamb and prepared it for his neighbors. And David said, that man should be killed. And Nathan pointed to David and said, you're that man. That had certainly persuaded David to take action, to cry out to the Lord in repentance. Perhaps this story, Joab thought, would cause David to do a similar thing. So he devised this plot to present the king with a tragic situation in which the king would pronounce judgment, which he did, and then hopefully apply that same judgment 
to himself. Let me just say this about vengeance and grudges. When you are the one who has been offended, when you are the one who has been hurt, when the responsibility, according to Scripture, is now upon you to pray for your enemy, to love your enemy, to do good to your enemy, to restore your enemy if he has sinned, to reconcile with your enemy, to cease hostility between he and in you. Uh, what we need to do is what Joab was hoping David would do. How would we want people to treat us if we were the offending party? And then let's apply that same principle in our handling of others who have offended us. And ultimately, we should simply just be committed to the obedience of Scripture. Uh, David himself had not long ago cried out to the Lord, again, after his adulterous affair, his murder of Uriah the Hittite, he cried out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Our God is a God of steadfast love, is He not? Our God is a God of mercy and compassion. And so because we are now the people of God, we should too be a people of steadfast love, mercy, and compassion. The woman was calling upon David as David had called upon God to show mercy in accordance with the steadfast love of the Lord. Joab, of course, suspected that he would indeed extend mercy to the woman and to her son. And of course, he did. He said immediately, I'll issue orders. I'll take care of this situation. You don't have to think about it anymore. I'll handle it. Of course, the woman seemingly was not satisfied with that answer. She persisted to engage him in conversation, again, ever uh, so gently drawing closer and closer to the main part uh, or the main point of her visit. Of course, as we read this story, the way that it's told should at least uh, cause David to see something, some similarity with his current situation, right? He just had a son who had killed another of his sons. David could put himself at least to a certain point into this story. What I'd also like to call to your attention is I believe that as David listened to this story, because he was a man who knew the Word of God, his mind immediately went back to the Genesis account of the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And of course... Murder, as we know in the Scripture, according to the law of God, is a, an offense punishable by death. And yet, God didn't kill Cain, nor did God kill David after his murder of Uriah. So what are we to make of that? What is David to make of that? As David thought back about the situation uh, between Cain and Abel and how God handled Cain after the murder of his brother, again, I believe Joab was hoping against hope that David would respond as the Lord had responded. So as we think about reconciling with those who have offended us, those are the two things we need to think about. First of all, how would I want someone to treat me if I were the offending party? We're to love our brother. We're to love our enemy. And how would God respond in a situation like this? So the words of Joab through this wise woman of Tekoa were a plea for reason. Be reasonable, David. 
respond to this situation the way you would want God to respond to you. And of course, David did uh, at least head in that direction. The woman continues to ask, well, she just simply asked the king, may I continue to speak? And uh, he says, certainly speak. And then the woman says this, look at verse 13. Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? I'm sure at this point, David had no idea what she was talking about. What does her story have to do with anything that he had planned for the people of God? She's beginning to drive home the point that her story was intended to make. David's refusal in all reality to deal with the sins of Amnon and Absalom was not only causing him frustration, sorrow, but also for the people of God. Something that we always need to realize is that our sin, as much as we would like to think, it only applies to me, it only hurts me. When we refuse to do what God's Word has commanded us to do, to live in a proper relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our families, with our church, fellow church members, it doesn't simply hurt us. It doesn't simply hurt us and the one that we are holding the grudge against, but it hurts the entire congregation. David, being out of fellowship, being upset with, his son Absalom, refusing to let Absalom even come into his presence was not only a problem for David and for the, 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 the palace court, but it was a problem for all Israel. At this point in time, we have to understand that Absalom was the heir apparent. He was the, the son who would take the place of his father David in the event that something happened to David. But he wasn't even allowed into the palace. Wasn't allowed into the presence of his father the king. So the woman, quite frankly, forthrightly, uh, reminds the king that he's God's representative on earth, that he should administer justice as God would. And we would probably all say that's right. David, you're the king. You're the king of Israel. You're to rule God's people as God has instructed you. You're to rule God's people in accordance with the word of God, with the nature of God. Again, you're God's representative to the people of Israel. You're to do justice in the same manner that God would do justice. And church, let me just say this to you. Are we not a kingdom of priests? and kings. We're God's representatives on this earth. The same argument that the lady is making before the king, we should apply directly to ourselves. God is holy and just, all right? He punishes sin, but he's also gracious and merciful. Isn't it interesting that the very God who said that, that the murderer should be punished with death is also the God who, in mercy and compassion, made a way for the murderer to escape death. Isn't it an amazing thing that the God who said in the New Testament that the wages of sin 
Our death has also provided a way for us to escape death through the grace and mercy that has been extended to us through his son, Jesus Christ. David was well aware of the redemptive nature of God. Listen to what he wrote in Psalm 103, verses 10 and 12. He said, God does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. There are countless pictures of God extending mercy to the sinner, extending mercy to the guilty, being gracious and kind. Yes, He is holy and just, but He is also gracious and merciful. We should be a people holy and just, but we should be gracious and merciful. Again, God's law calls for the death of those who sin, but His mercy provides the way of escape. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. For all of you who are in my Wednesday night Bible study, we're almost there, aren't we? It's been about 18 months and we're all the way to chapter 9 in Hebrews. We're almost to this, this passage. This is what Hebrews 9 says. So the writer of Hebrews says this. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So there it is. Just as the woman said in this passage of Scripture, we all die, all right? But God devises a means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Our God is a God of redemption. Holy, just, but gracious and merciful. We should seek to live lives that epitomize a redemptive spirit showing mercy and compassion even to those whose sin has directly impacted our own lives in a hurtful way. David finally realizes what's going on. So he asks the woman if Joab is behind all of this and of course she immediately says, he is, as surely as you live, verse 19 there. Uh, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that you've said. In other words, everything you've said is exactly right. Your servant Joab is the one who commanded me. It's he who put all these words into my mouth. And then verse 20 is the reason why the motivation behind all this. In order to change the course of things, your servant Job did this. When we hold a grudge against someone and refuse to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness, what inevitably takes place is our lives become entrenched in that grudge. It becomes the pattern of our life. It affects everything that we do. Again, as the writer of Hebrews said, this root of bitterness springs up within us and it, and it, and it overwhelms us. And again, not just us, but even extending to those all around us. And so what the Scripture calls for, what, what's being called for here, 
What the New Testament calls for is that for us as Christians not to remain in that rut of grudge-keeping, hostility, enmity, hatred toward our brother, but rather we're to change the course of things. We're to make things right. And that takes some courage on our parts, and it takes action on our parts. Again, David has been characterized by inaction up to this point. Joab, through this woman from Tekoa, is calling upon David to act, and to act in a manner that will set things right. He has allowed things to go on wrong for too long. And it's time to set things right. His refusal to act has set in motion this chain of events that has led up to the very current situation. And if he continues in that refusal, if he continues to refuse to act in accordance with the redemptive nature of God, then in all likelihood, it's going to make matters even worse. So it's time to set things right. And church, the same thing is true for you. I don't know how long you've been at odds with your brother. I don't know how long you've allowed some hurt to fester in your heart. I don't know how long you've carried a grudge against someone that has hurt you in some way in the past. It doesn't really matter. However long it's been, it's time to set things right. It's time to do the right thing. It's time to change the course of things. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, pretty broad, right? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the command to God's people today. Don't carry out vengeance against the one who's hurt you, but rather restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Christian, it is your responsibility to set things right. You know, Perhaps David's thinking was this, if I just let enough time pass, if I just let enough time go by, everything's going to work itself out. You ever have thoughts like that? I'm just going to ignore this problem, I'm going to let enough time pass, and if enough time goes by, eventually everybody will forget about this thing and it'll just all be okay. And you know, most of the time that doesn't work that way, does it? So it's time, Christian, for you to act. Scripture even tells us that for us to worship properly, if we are holding something against our brother in our heart, before we even come to make an offering to God, the Bible says leave your offering at the altar and go get things right with your brother, then come back and make your offering. It's time for us to act, to restore a relationship that has been damaged even by someone else's sin plea for restoration. And then finally, this idea of reconciliation. David agrees to bring Absalom back to the palace. Well, not really to the palace, just back to Jerusalem. But he's to live in his own house, and he's not to come into the presence of the king. And of course, he does that. He does not allow Absalom to even sit across the table and eat with his father. He won't allow him to see him face to face, to come into the presence of the king. That's what that means. And that goes on for two years until Absalom becomes so frustrated that he's willing to set some man's field on fire to get things done right. So in doing that, he persuades Joab to go to the king 
and to make a request that he can be allowed to return home and enter into the presence of the Father. Absalom wanted more than simply being reinstated to his place in society. I mean, Absalom was welcomed home in a sense. He was brought home. He was allowed to live in his own house. Obviously, he had a reputation among the people. He was a handsome man, loved by the people, as we're going to see as things go on. But he had not been reconciled with the king. The king had not allowed him to come into his presence. And so that's what Absalom wanted, not simply reinstatement to society, but to be reconciled with his father. You know, this is the wonderful thing about God. Forgiveness is a great thing, is it not? Aren't we, aren't we glad today that God forgives our sin? But God doesn't just forgive our sin. God forgives our sin, and then he invites us to engage in the most intimate and familiar relationship with him imaginable. God wants a personal relationship with us. It's not just a judicial act where he declares us righteous, although he does that. He makes us a member of his family. He adopts us as his children. We become citizens of heaven, members of the household of God. We have constant, continual access to the presence of our God, unlike Absalom had. So God not only forgives our sin, but he offers us this personal relationship. That's what reconciliation is all about. When we really desire to do the right thing, we don't just say to the offending party, the one that's hurt us, okay, I'm just going to forget it. Just, just, just go away and I hope I don't ever have to see you again, but I'm going to forget what you did. No, we seek to establish, to reestablish that relationship. That friendship, that's what reconciliation is. That's what we're called to do. No longer are we to harbor hostility in our heart, but we're to live in peace, even with our enemy. David himself had called out to God in the 51st Psalm, verse 11. What did he say? Cast me not away from your presence. David knew what it was to sin, to sin greatly, and to experience that feeling of separation from God. He cried out, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. David was crying out to God for the very things that this woman of Tekoa was pleading with David to do in his own relationship with Absalom. So church, if you're a Christian, you've been reconciled to God. And God has now entrusted you, entrusted us with the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are to every day, as the title of this message says, we're to be plotting peace. We're to be planning ministries of restoration and reconciliation. That's what God has called us to do. That's what God's done for us. And that's what we're to do for one another. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has suffered separation from God. But what God has done for us is He has plotted peace for us. He pleased for reason. The words of Jesus, come to me all who are weak 
burdened. I'll give you rest. Doesn't that sound reasonable? If you're burdened, if you need rest, if you're weak, come to me. I'll give you rest. He pleads for redemption. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He pleads for restoration. If anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation. You don't have to live the way you're living now. You don't have to live the way you've always lived. Come to Christ. He'll make you a new creation. The old has passed away, Paul says. Behold, the new has come. And of course, this is that plea for reconciliation there in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. That's what God does for us. He doesn't count our transgressions against us. So do you want to leave a godly legacy? Then as Paul says, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God.